As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear and read and learn and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of John this evening, John chapter 5. We want to read this verse and think about uh, these verses and think about them in connection with uh, our catechism reading. So John chapter 5, beginning our reading at verse 19, and we'll read through verse 29 together. So John chapter 5, beginning our reading at verse 19 and reading through verse 29. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel." For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, We've been considering a a series through the, the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's Uh, discussion of the grace of God as we understand it and see it uh, being represented to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's what we've been going through. We've thought about his name, his titles. We've been thinking about his work. And when it comes to how the Apostles' Creed considers the work of Jesus Christ, it considers it in really two stages. First, we think about the humiliation of our Lord, and then we think about the exaltation of the Lord. Um, how he comes into the world to save sinners, and then how he is glorified by his Father. And so if you think about the Apostles' Creed, that's how the confession works out about our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The first part of his humiliation is becoming incarnate um, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and then suffering under Pontius Pilate, being crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell. 
Uh, that's not meant to list things in a temporal order, uh, things as they happened in time. It's listing how these things happen in terms of his humiliation. And so the lowest point of his humiliation is his descent into hell, the things that he suffered uh, all of his life, but particularly on the cross. Um, and that, that's the, the, the hard story of, of the Savior who comes to lay down his life for sinners. But then there begins the glory of the Lord. That from that humiliation to which he has descended into the depths of hell, he rises from the dead. Um, He ascends into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, All of this is the glory of the Son. And the final ultimate stage of his exaltation is when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Then Christ will be the most exalted and glorified. Uh, when he returns in glory. And so we're in, we're in the good section uh, in the sense of the Apostles' Creed, this, the upsweep of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Having thought already about his ascension, we now think about his rule in heaven and his return in glory. Uh, that's really the articles that are contained in this 19th Lord's Day, considering what it means that Christ is ruling Um, that he's reigning now, and what it means for us when he will return in glory. Um, And these are things that are worth thinking about for our comfort now um, and for our comfort in the things that are soon to take place, Uh, the glories that are God's, that are Christ now, and the glory that will be his when he returns. Um, Christ rules because he has been exalted to the right hand by his father, and from that place he one day will come again as he ascended. Uh, he will come down to judge the living and the dead. Um, and so we want to think about the rule and the return of Christ this evening, and think about it just in the way these three questions of the catechism present these items to us. To think about first the truth of Christ's rule, the benefits of Christ's rule, and then finally the comfort of Christ's return. That's what we want to think about these things this evening. The truth of Christ's rule, the benefits of Christ's rule, and the comfort of Christ's return. Uh, we're just going to follow really the pattern here that the catechism gives us. We want to first think a bit and meditate about the truth of Christ's rule. Question 50 asks, why the next words and sits at the right hand of God? And the answer is, Christ ascended into heaven there to show that he is the head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. Uh, Sometimes in theology, this is called the session of Christ. Uh, We talk about the ascension of Christ, the session of Christ, and then the return of Christ. Um, And some people have asked, well, you know, why do we call it the session of Christ? Uh, What what does that really signify? Um, Well, if you've ever been in court or seen a a court television show, when when the judge comes in, what does the bailiff say? All rise, court is now in session. The honorable so-and-so presiding. And then the judge will come in and they will sit in their chair. And once they sit, then everyone else can sit. Um, And that's the sign that court is now in session. Um, The judge is sitting on his or her bench. It's now officially the time of the court. Um, If you've ever been in a courtroom, uh, there's a lot of chaos that goes on when the judge is not in session when the judge is not necessarily sitting holding court. But once the judge is ready to gavel in and do, do the business of the court, then everybody has to quiet down, everybody has to settle down, and order is, is in the court. Um, the judge is there in their official capacity to now sit in session 
and to, in a sense, rule. Um, if you've ever been in a court, the judge rules. There's no, there's no doubt about who's in charge in a courtroom. Um, and that's why we call it the session of Christ. Christ sits at the right hand of his father, and now he is in session as the king. The king has taken, his, taken up his throne and begun to reign. Um, that, that's, the, that's the glorious message that comes when we think about the session of Christ. He ascends into heaven to be seated at the right hand of his father. And if we think about that in terms of his, of his kingly work, it's a glorious moment for the king. Uh, because he has been, in a sense, officially coronated when he rose from the dead. Uh, that's when he was crowned, in a sense, by his father. Now, he's always been king, right? He was born king. But there's a time at which he becomes officially coronated as king. That happens at his resurrection. And we can say he officially takes up his work when he is seated at the right hand of his father. And that, that's a glorious moment in the history of salvation for the conquering triumphant king to take his seat and begin to rule. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, but he sits down to exercise it. Um, he sits down to now exercise that authority in, a, in an official capacity. And we should, we should not miss this important work of the Lord, this, this wonderful moment in, in the history of redemption when Jesus ascends into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of his Father. Um, it's a wonderful moment. And what does it signify that he, when he takes his seat? That he is now at the right hand of the place of power. He is now ruling. Um, I don't know how, how we think about it when we think that he is seated at the Father's right hand. Um, you know, sometimes when we say, he's my right hand man, you mean that he's sort of the second in command. And that's not how we're to think of Jesus Christ, sort of sitting at the Father's right hand, kind of operating as the second in command. The Father's really the one in charge, and Jesus is kind of his second, like Joseph was to Pharaoh. That's not how we're to think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being seated at the right hand of the Father in power means the Father has said to Christ, all my authority is invested in you. You are ruling now in my name. Um, You are not sort of the second in command. Actually, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to you. Um, Jesus now reigns. Not as the Father's sort of second in command, but as the authority the Father has established over all the world. Um, Our King is the King of all. The King over all. Blessed forever as the ruler of heaven and earth, having received all power from His Father. It speaks to how God works in Trinity. It doesn't make Jesus a lesser power. And that's, that's the glory of the King we have. That's the truth of Christ's rule, is that he is reigning now with all power, with all authority in heaven and on earth, sitting on his throne and ruling. He is the one, as question 50 rightly says, through whom the Father governs all things. Uh, That is the message he's conveying in, in John 5 as well. All authority has been given to him by the Father. Um, As the Father has life in himself, so he's given the Son to have Life in himself. Uh, the authority of the Son is on display. Um, that's what Christ wants us to understand. 
Um, So when we acknowledge Christ as the king, what we are acknowledging is he is the one over whom there is no authority. There is no authority higher than this king. He is the true power in the universe. Um, And it's good to know that the highest power in the universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has ascended there not only to exercise his father's rule, but to exercise his father's rule on behalf of his church. Uh, The glory is that Jesus rules with no higher authority. The good news for us is that he rules with that authority for our sakes. But all of that power has been invested in him for the sake of the church. So we can rejoice that he rules with the father's authority. John 5, 22 and 23, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 3, 22 says, who has gone into, Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Um, unless we miss it, the the initial entry, uh, the entry statement of the Great Commission is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus reigns over all. There is nothing in this world that is not subject to his rule. There is not anything in this world that is not subject to his power. And that should be a great encouragement to Christians who sometimes feel as if the world is just spinning off its tracks, and who is really in charge? Um, Well, Christ is really in charge. Uh, He is the king, and he's ruling all things for the sake of his church. It's really a remarkable thing that Paul says in Ephesians 1 when he talks about the exaltation of Christ and the purpose for which he was exalted. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 19-23, According to the working of his great might, so that, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church." which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's been exalted to be the head of the church. He's been exalted for our sake. And so all that lofty language that Paul employs is to say he's been made head of over all things for us, for the benefit of his body as the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says something similar. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, he, we are united to the king who reigns in heaven. And the king is reigning in heaven for the sake of his people. That's his concern, is his subjects. Uh, that's who he's ruling the world and moving the world for. When we begin to think that way, it really is an awesome privilege that we see to belong to the kingdom of God. Uh, To know that by faith we are members of this kingdom and that the king who's been exalted, who's ruling at the right hand of the Father, who has all authority, has been put in that place 
to govern things for our sakes. For the sake of those for whom he gave his life. Now that he has taken up his reign to guard us in his kingdom. We think about that when we confess Christ as king. We say he's our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends us and preserves us in the salvation that he has won for us. His particular concern as king is for his subjects. He's there for our good. The father who loves us has installed him to care for us. What a wonderful privilege to have that truth. That's why we we celebrate not just that reality that Christ is exalted for the church, but we think and meditate on the benefits of that rule. Now, the truth of that rule means benefits for God's people. And what are the benefits of Christ's rule? Well, question 51, we say, how does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon us, his members. The first benefit is that we have in heaven a gift-giving king who pours out on his people the things they need for this life. And if we want to think about those heavenly gifts, we could sort of think about them in, in, in two categories. He gives us personal gifts, and he gives us communal or community gifts, gifts that are for us as individual members of his kingdom and for us all in community as members of his kingdom. He is a king who is rich in resources and who is generous with his people. Uh, He pours out all sorts of personal gifts on us. Uh, The gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives to every single one of the elect individually. That the Holy Spirit would come and, and tabernacle with us, take up his home with us, to guard us and help us, to sanctify us after the image of the Savior. We all have received the Holy Spirit, all of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've received then the gifts of regeneration and faith and sanctification. We've been adopted into the family of God. We will one day be glorified. Um, Those are the gifts he gives all of his people. And then he gives gifts that are for the whole church. He gives us the scriptures as the word of God that we might know the will of the king. That we might know the rules of the kingdom and the love the king has for his people. Um, These are gifts that God has given by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now the church is a gift that God has given for all of his people. I don't know if we think about the church as, as a gift from God. Uh, to his people, but it is. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 7 through 12, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. He's given us the church to all of us and given us all different functions in the church. The church has, has off special offices as ministers and elders and deacons, but we also have members who are all the office of members. Um, and all of us function together. We can't all be pastors. There's not enough room up here. 
Um, it would be chaos if we were all trying to speak and no one was trying to listen, right? Um, we, we have these different offices to be able to exercise, and God has given us all to one another. Uh, there's no one in the church who can say, well, you know, I'm not really essential to the operation. If I'm, if I'm not here, no one will miss me. Um, everyone is essential to the operation of the church. Um, it's, it's one thing I, I found a lot visiting, especially older saints and people who are locked in or shut in um, over the course of my ministry, is that they sometimes say, I, I just serve no function anymore. You know, there was a day I used to be able to sort of you know, help mothers watch their children or I could help out in, in, in Sunday school or I could, I could show up to church and I could do certain things. But you know, now I don't do anything. Um, I, I just can't really contribute anymore. Um, and, you know, I always try to tell those saints, we still need your prayers. It's an encouragement to us to know that you're praying for us. Um, th- there's no one who's a member of the church who can say, I don't have a function here. I'm not important here. Um, you, you don't have to stand up here to be important to the church. You don't have to stand up here to be vital to the church. We're all called to encourage one another. Um, We're all called to serve one another. And there are times where God will give us the strength and the resources in life to be the people who bear the burdens. Um, But there's going to be a time over a long enough continuum within the people of God that you are going to be the burden that someone else is going to have to carry. And, And the glory is that's why... God has set up his church. So there may be times where you can be the burden carrier. But that when you need to be carried, there's someone to carry you. Um, some of them, maybe that sounds familiar because I've said that speech to you before. It's my burden-bearing speech. Um, because we all like being the burden carrier. None of us like being the burden to be born. We'd all prefer to be the burden carriers. But the church exists to be a burden-bearing community. Whether you're the carrier or whether you're the burden, the church is for you. And it's a humbling thing, but sometimes we have to say, I don't have the right to not be a burden. <laughs> there are people here who are ready to carry me, and I need to be carried. You know, another pastor once said, the church is a hospital, and the only real sin is to hide your illness from the doctors and the nurses. We shouldn't be surprised that we have sick people. We shouldn't be surprised that we have burdened people that need our help carrying. And that's why God has given us a whole church. Everybody in the church has a function. Even our children do. Uh, We rejoice when we hear our children singing, when we hear our children confessing. Uh, Maybe the parents don't rejoice so much, but it's fun for the rest of us to hear. Um, But it's it's a reminder, do children have a function in the church now? Sometimes we can talk in terms of, well, one day you'll be, you'll, be, uh, you'll be members of the church, as if you're not important today. You're important today. Um, it, w- it would be a lonely business for me to show up at night and be the only person here. Um, we're encouraging one another by being here. Um, at the risk that I've already belabored the point enough, uh, everybody is important in the church. That's why every, every part of the body has a function. Not all of us have the same function, but Paul says we all have a function. 
And we all need to have different functions so that we fit in together. A body that's one giant eye, Paul says, is, is something that is kind of grotesque and doesn't really work. If we're all an eye, we can't get anywhere. We need some feet. Um, that's what, why God has composed the body as he has. Um, and that's the blessing that God has given. That's the benefit that Christ has poured out in the world, a church, to settle the solitary in a home, to give us a place where we can belong, where we can belong to one another and care for one another. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 24, and 26, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And we see this communal attitude in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, We need one another, and that's a blessing that Christ has given. He's provided us a church. Um, Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is as well. A church to provide that he has provided for us. And what else do we have? Not only a Lord who is in heaven pouring out heavenly gifts, on his people, but what else is a benefit to having Christ seated at the right hand of his Father? That by his power he defends us and preserves us from all enemies. Uh, why has he ascended there? Because it's best for the protection of his kingdom. It's best for the protection of his subjects that he be at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And that's what he has gone to heaven to do as well. To, pre- to defend us and preserve us from all enemies. Um, and that, that scripture, the scriptures are very clear that this is Christ's work as king, to be our protector, to be our defender. Um, Psalm 110, 1 and 2, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Or John 10, we read, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, The Lord is reigning, preserving us and protecting us and putting down the enemies of his kingdom. And that promise of preservation and protection is not just a promise in the future when he one day will deliver us, but it's what he's about even now. One of the things that we are comforted to confess about God the Father as that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and further that whatever evil he sends upon, sends upon me in this troubled life, he will turn to my good. But how does the Father do that? He does that through his Son, through the rule of Christ in heaven. And we have there in heaven a man who is ruling, who knows what it is to live in this world body and soul who knows what kind of defense his people need, 
And Christ is that almighty king who will see to it that whatever befalls us in this world will be turned to our good. Now we can be assured that that will happen because he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We can see that that's happened for him. All the evil that befell him has turned out to this great good of having this king seated on the throne and ruling over all. He's risen. He's he's seated at the right hand in power. Um, But that's not the fullness of his exaltation, right? That's That's the penultimate, the second to last stage of his exaltation. When is the true glory of the Lord fulfilled in fullness and consummated? It's when he returns in glory. And the Catechism helps us to think about the comfort of Christ's return. That return he promises in John 5. That he will come again in judgment. um, A resurrection of all who will hear his voice and will come out. Um, The comfort of Christ's return. Uh, Christ talks about that return in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Um, This is a question in the Catechism 52 that I think, before rushing on to the answer, is always worth meditating on the question. Um, Because the question I always find to be a very interesting one. Question 52 asks, How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Um, And I always sort of think, I'm not sure I would always necessarily go to think of the judgment as a comfort. Um, I don't know how you think about the judgment, but I don't know if you associate the judgment and comfort. Um, I'm not sure that I read those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And I think of that, how comforting. Um, I think sometimes it raises questions in our mind. To which resurrection will I be raised? I've certainly been one who's done evil. Um, Does that mean I will not be raised to the resurrection of life? Um, Does that really comfort me to think about the judgment? And I love that the catechism helps us and says, no, you should think about it as a comfort. You know, it doesn't have a question that says, now why is it a comfort? And then how is it a comfort? It just has a question that says, it's a comfort. Uh, and that, that helps us because it, it helps us to see that's how we should think about the judgment that's coming, as a comfort. And why is it a comfort? Well, it's a comfort because of who's coming in the judgment. Who is coming to judge the living and the dead? It's the same Lord we trust in for life. He's the Lord who's coming again in judgment. And that's how we can encourage one another with this idea. You know, that's when Paul says at the end of what he talks about, the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, his last encouragement is, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another about the coming of the Lord. And how does, that, how does the judgment become a comfort to us? It becomes a comfort when we really remember two things. That Christ is coming in judgment for the people he's been on the throne for the whole time. The king who loves us and who's been caring for us is the king who comes for us in the end. He comes for us and against our enemies. He comes for us, not against us. And when we understand that, then we can be comforted. 
Christ doesn't return against his people. Christ returns as the king who's been loving us, caring us, protecting us, defending us, preserving us. And this is the last great act of defense. Right? This is the consummation of the kingdom when all that threatens his people is destroyed. That's what Jesus is coming to do in the end. To destroy all that threatens the happiness of his people, to destroy the remnant of what threatens us from our, inside ourselves, to sanctify us completely, and to remove everything else in the world that would threaten his kingdom and threaten the citizens of his kingdom. That's the glory of the judgment that's coming, that he's coming for us, not against us. How does this return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. I don't have to fear the coming judgment because the judgment was already rendered against me. The judgment was rendered against me on the cross when Christ took all my sins on himself and died in my place. When he became accursed in my place so that he could set me free from it. That's why I don't have to fear the coming judgment. My judgment has already taken place. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, that's true for you too. Your judgment has already taken place. That's why there's nothing to fear in the judgment to come. Our sins were judged on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's not coming against us, he's coming for us. He's coming for us, the very one who already stood the judgment in our place, who already removed the curse from us. He's coming to deliver us. Right? Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and the glory of heaven. He comes to see justice done for heaven. He's already done that for his people. Um, He's now going to do it against the enemies who have refused to bow the knee, who have afflicted his people. And the king in heaven has been watching. He's been putting tears in his bottle. He's been keeping account of our tossings. Um, He's been taking into account the wickedness and the vexation of the world. And he comes to take it in hand. That's why the plea of the church in this world is be reconciled to God before it's too late. Submit yourself to the king. Put your faith in him. Let his sacrifice become yours. So that you have withstood his judgment already before that judgment comes that you cannot withstand. Right? The mocking that Peter heard in his day. People said, where's the promise of his coming? The world has always gone on just the same way. It's always been just fine. You say there's going to be this cataclysmic event. I don't believe you. Where is it? The world always has gone on the exact same way. And Peter says, you know, you really ought to check your history because the world's already been destroyed once in a destruction of water. And there's another destruction coming, and it's a destruction of fire 
And it's not just going to be on the earth, it's going to be on the heavens and the earth. And how can you survive that? Only if the king protects you from it. Only if you've already been judged in him on the cross. Then when that judgment comes, you have nothing to fear. He's on your side. Notice that his enemies are your enemies. He comes to judge my enemies and his. I'm on the king's side in that equation. He's coming for me to bring me into heavenly rest. That's why our plea is always be reconciled to God by the blood of his son. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that that sacrifice he offered on the cross would be for you, that that judgment would be for you, that that removal of curse would be for you because this is an intensely personal business. Right? Um, When we confess the king, we talk about what we all experience together, our profit, our gifts, our defense, our preservation. Question 52 talks about my comfort. Um, It's an intensely personal question. Do you look up to heaven and acknowledge Christ as king? Um, Do you put your faith and trust in him? Is his cross yours by faith? Because then in, in all your sorrows and persecutions, you can lift up your head and know that the king is coming. And that when he comes, he brings nothing with him but glory for us. That his coming is a great and awesome day. A great and glorious day. A great and joyous day for his people. And not that great and awful day that it will be for those who do not know him. Um, And so this is an intensely personal thing. But meant to drive us to Christ that we might be filled with hope. That we might live in hope. That when we suffer here below we lift up our heads. And know that there's a king in heaven who's for us and he's coming. That's where our hope is to be. That's where our hope is to be derived. He's in heaven. He's coming. And our hope is surely he is coming soon. Right? The time is short. He's coming soon. Uh, So no matter what befalls you in this life, Christian, in your distress, in your sorrow, lift up your head to your Savior. Know that there's nothing to fear because he's on the throne and he's coming. And when he comes, he will make all things new. And so our ultimate prayer, our ultimate hope is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We pray that all here would know the blessedness of faith in Christ, to know that we have in heaven at your right hand a king who is for us who is working all things for our salvation, who is coming in glory to bring us to be with you forever. We look forward to that great day when the sanctifying work in us will be complete and the the new heavens and the new earth will come where only righteousness dwells and there will be nothing to threaten your people anymore and no more sin and no more death and the former things will pass away. How we long for that day, but until that day comes, might we remember that Christ is still seated on his throne the great king over all, and that we have from him blessed blessings from heaven and a king who is determined to defend us and preserve us in the salvation he has won for us to the end. To him be all the glory. And hear our prayers, for we pray in his name. Amen.